Hello and welcome to Nonbreaking Space, which you can find online at nonbreakingspace.tv. Nonbreaking Space is a show where we'll seek out the best, brightest, and smartest folks on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are usually Christopher Schmidt and Dave McFarland, two web designers, authors, and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. Sitting in for Christopher this week is Emily Lewis, a web designer, developer, and co-host of the EE Podcast. And I'm Chris from Canada, a web designer and podcaster. Christopher and Dave have invited along to help push the record button and keep everyone on track here on Non-Breaking Space. Our guest for this episode is Glenda Sims. Glenda is an accessibility consultant, speaker, author, and trainer for Nobility, a nonprofit whose mission is barrier-free IT. She works at DeQ, where she is a senior accessibility consultant. There she shares her expertise and passion for the open web with government, educational institutions, small businesses, and Fortune 500 companies. She performs hands-on web accessibility assessments, develops accessibility roadmaps and strategies, and consults with developers and designers. So at this time, I'll turn it over to Dave and Emily and their conversation with Glenda. Emily, hello. Welcome to Hi. the show. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's nice to have a, a new co-host. That's so fun. Novel. I know, and I have, <laughs> I have very large large shoes to fill, literally. <laughs> <laughs> literally giant shoes of Christopher Schmidt. That's true. Um, so we have with us Glenda Sims, and she is an accessibility expert. So without further ado, why don't we invite her on? Hi, Glenda. Hi, Dave. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. So maybe we just start with a little bit of history. Uh, how did you get into the web and, and what made you specialize in accessibility? So interestingly enough, um, I can remember my first moment where I touched the web. Um, it was NCSA Mosaic um, and <laughs> I pulled up my first web page and I went, oh my God, this is the most exciting thing in the world because I'm a book lover. And so I recognized that it was the largest book on the planet and it was just going to get bigger and bigger. So that was my first moment on the web. Um, I also was a programmer at the University of Texas at Austin for a number of years, uh, coding business applications. Um, and then I specialized in human resources. And it was at about that time that we started to put an application, an employment application out on the web. And so my understanding of making sure that all people had equal access came from my HR background and then just translated into my digital work. Glenda, when you talk about accessibility as equal access, can you be a little more specific? Like what, what is, if you're explaining accessibility to someone who wasn't familiar with it, what mm -hmm. would you say? So when I meet people in an airplane and I tell them what I do and they kind of look at me and say, what? <laughs> um, one of the first things that I say is that official disabilities that we're trying to deal with are uh, for people that can't see, uh, can't hear, can't use a mouse for some reason, have a cognitive disability, or have a speech disability. So we're trying to make it so that those people have equal access to all the content on the web as a person that has all those abilities. But what's really exciting about the work that I do is that it transcends far more than just those five specific official disabilities and gets into the concepts of universal design. So with that, are you talking like, you know, mobile now that that's getting more popular? Absolutely. For years, I would, uh, during my accessibility presentations, my intro it, 
in introducing people to the concepts. I would, at the point that I discussed the official disabilities, then add um, a second discussion of how these same issues affect people that might have uh, missing plugins, uh, slow internet connections, um, or are trying to use the web on a mobile device because using a desktop designed system on a mobile device window can be very painful and and vice versa. So there is a lot of overlap between what's good for mobile design and what's good for uh, accessible design. So when you talk about universal design, is that um, is that sort of a recognized concept? Could you explain that to our listeners? So universal design um, as first uh, defined by James Craig to me, not to say that he designed it for the universe, but he designed, he explained it to me, was designed so thoughtful that it works for everyone from the start. Um, so one of the things that I keep in mind when I pursue accessibility for people with official disabilities is I never want to harm the experience for people without disabilities. And my goal is that the developers and designers that are working with me actually think, oh my Lord, I've actually created a better design because I brought accessibility into the picture. It might be hard at the beginning to incorporate that accessibility, but I actually want the design to improve. Um, so some of the factors that I consider are, does it work for everyone with disabilities? Are the users without disabilities still happy? And then I also consider search engine optimization, mobile, and I want all those things to hit that sweet spot. And that's when I know that I have a good solution. If anything's breaking in there or somebody's unhappy, um, there's still some solutioning that needs to be done. So Glenda, when you talk about these solutions, could you give me um, a narrow example of something that you would encounter and you would evaluate across all of those different um, perspectives, you know, maybe something as simple as like, or maybe not simple, but as video or uh, audio? Um, you know what, the first one that jumped to my mind is what I'm going to go with. So imagine we were trying to do a financial transaction um, on a site, like, let's say I'm trying to pay a bill online. Um, and as we look at that from a person with a disability, I want to make sure that it's working with a screen reader, uh, that it's working with keyboard alone, that it's working if the person is colorblind, can't see any reference to, oh, all your errors are in red. I can't see red, I'm colorblind. Um, so those that would be the accessibility solutioning angle. And as we would come into working on that, what I would find as we discuss this with the developers of, of the uh, particular page, as we found errors in this transaction, we realized that the design was broken for all users, that the order of the fields for making the deposit was in an illogical order, and that the problems that the screen reader was bringing up made us realize, oh, we need to redesign this for everyone. And it also reminds me of when you're on a mobile device and you're looking at that screen for, I want to uh, pay this bill. 
are the form labels in such a way that on your small device, you can see the form labels or do you have to scroll left, right? Oh, look, here's an input field. Can't see the label at the same time. Oh, here's the label. Okay, what is it? Left, right, left, right. So it's that kind of thing where you're trying to find a solution that meets all those needs. And it, is it a process where you literally have a checklist you go through, or is it more of a, a user interaction-based process of evaluating this? It's a combination. There's definitely a set of heuristics uh, to start with. Wonderful, wonderful um, piece over on WebAIM, and it's the infographic. It's accessibility for designers. And so I try and make sure that anyone that at the design stage has the principles of accessibility in mind. Because once you have those principles in mind, you can avoid a lot of the problems. But in reality, even if you had that in mind when you went through design phase, and even if the developers have training and testing, you don't know that you really hit gold until you do usability testing with real humans that weren't involved in the design or development phase. And when you think about it, accessibility is just an extreme usability case. So just like you need to form usability on your, can real humans use this? You want to make sure people with disabilities can also use it. Right. So uh, one thing that often helps me to, you know, sort of from a usability perspective is to, to gain empathy with my users is to really understand how they go about using a website, or in the case of maybe people who have um, severe disabilities, how they even use their computer. Could you maybe run through a few scenarios of, say, someone who is blind, how, how do they literally access the web? What are the technologies do they use? How do they uh, navigate and interpret the web without uh, sight? Right. And it's interesting, Dave, that's a great question, because so many people, when I tell them what I do, they're like, how in the world does a blind person even do this? And it really is stunning. If you if you have a Mac, you already have one of the tools, a very powerful tool that comes with an operating system, um, and it's called VoiceOver. That is a screen reader that will read anything it possibly can off your web page or even your application, uh, whether you're using Microsoft Word or Excel or whatever. Um, and that screen reader is telling you what is on the page. What's exciting about using a screen reader in the browser platform, any browser platform, is that it's not just going to read the content of the page to you. It's also going to give you some power user abilities. And that is can I see a link list? Can I see all the links in this page at once? Can I see them in tab order, the same order you and I would read them left to right down the page? Oh, wait, no, I want to see those in alphabetical order. I want to be able to move through them by typing in a letter. Uh, so the link lists, and you can also pull up heading lists. You can jump by forms and tables. And all of this is being controlled with the screen reader reading the source code of the web page and the keyboard because people people that are blind don't use a mouse a mouse is a tool that requires sight so that's how a blind person uses it um and then i can't help but also mention that one of the base tests um for accessibility is keyboard alone because that kind of leans you towards figuring out what a screen reader user needs on a foundational level um, and also deals with people with mobility impairments that can't use a mouse. 
Hmm. So, wow, that's interesting. So they, they can look at a page sort of at a meta level um, where they're kind of analyzing chunks of, of types of information like links and uh, yes. content and other th and headings, things like that. That's great. It's interesting. Yeah. So what and, about some, some other disabilities, like someone who has, you were talking about motor impairment. Could you give us an example of, of what that is and how it impacts people and then how they work around that for surfing the web? It's, it's really interesting because for years, you know, I've been in this field for um, over 12 years. Um, and in the beginning, there's so much focus on visual disabilities. Why? Well, because at that point on the web, almost everything was visual. You know, it was text, it was links, it was images. Remember the good old days? No, remember the old boring days? Um, and and, and now, as we move to much more dynamic content and multimedia, we are we are hitting some of these other challenges with other disabilities. So the um, keyboard only, the mobility uh, disorders, um, what I want you to imagine is this. If a person uh, was a quadriplegic and all they had was the ability to put a um, device, like a pencil in their mouth, and tap on the keys one at a time. Could they use your web page by keyboard alone? Mm -hmm. I have friends that use the web that way. Um, I also have a dear friend, um, her name is Glenda Watson Hyatt. Uh, she has cerebral palsy um, and she uses the web. She calls herself the left thumb blogger. So if you can imagine <laughs> um, using your non-dominant hand and only your thumb to navigate the web and wow. it's and it's shaking. Okay, your, your hand's not still. It, it, you can't keep it still. It, it, it shakes yeah. back and forth with a tremor. And so as she's using it, um, her ability is merely the keyboard, one key at a time. Um, and she, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating to watch the independence that we provide these incredibly intelligent people that just happen to have different abilities than we do. And in that situation, in terms of mobility that you just men mentioned, it, it also occurs to me that in addition to people who have uh, a more severe disability, it would apply to someone who may have a temporary disability, like a broken arm or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I thought about it the other day because I was having something that I thought was uh, carpal tunnel pain um, in my wrist. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Because I'm really mouse dependent in my daily work. Um, and I tried to switch to the other hand to use it with my left hand and I couldn't. <laughs> and just the ability to do keyboard um actions instead of the mouse started to help me with my personal pain in my right arm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So definitely true. And, and again, that speaks to universal design. I was designing this for official disability. I wasn't designing it for the person with a temporary disability. Or um, I also like to think of eyes busy or hands busy, where you can use these technologies and it, you don't have any official disability at all. Uh, we often say this for captioning. Um, how um, have you ever used captioning um, in an environment where you weren't using it because you had a disability, but it was just convenient? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm wondering, you've, you've described a lot of these um, scenarios and the different types of users. And hearing you talk about it, it's it's apparent to me how important this is. 
Do you find that uh, when you're attending different events and conferences um, that maybe aren't focused on accessibility, but you're speaking to a broader group of maybe developers and designers that they have the kind of appreciation necessary for this universal design? I would say that once they understand it, it becomes an addiction, but I wouldn't say that it's always already present. Almost the opposite. A couple of things I think that contribute to that. Understanding whether your webpage is accessible or not to people with disabilities is kind of invisible. It's, It's hard to see as opposed to oh, my video won't load and won't play. That's like, oh, well, this page isn't finished yet. Versus, does this page work in a screen reader or can Glenda Watson-Hyatt use it with her left thumb? Um, You know, it's invisible to the developer. But once they get it, they're like, oh my gosh, I want to do it. So it's that exposure to it and then the exposure to the testing techniques. So when people say things like, well, you know, this is just going to add a whole layer of cost to our project, you know, mm-hmm. I don't think we can do this. What is yeah. your response to that? Oh, I never heard anyone say that before. Just kidding. <laughs> 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 because that's exactly what happens. And um, I will tell you a, a, a large portion of the time um, I get brought in because of legal challenges or uh, risk aversion from companies because it is a legal requirement if you are .gov. It is clearly a legal requirement if you are .edu. I'm speaking in the in the United States um, for Section 504. We have to provide equal access to students. Um, and there is case and settlements, uh, legal cases and settlements longer than my arm that show .com is involved too. Uh, Department of Justice uh, consent decrees um, on .coms. And so as we look at this, if you just look at the legal risk at some of these lawsuits, some of these lawsuits have cost companies $16 million plus. Okay, so, you know, you want to talk about costs? Well, I'll show you costs. <laughs> and at the, at, at the same time, if we design with accessibility in mind from the front end, um, we are estimating, and it's, it's funny because we have, we have a discussion on this and we're looking for, we're looking to see if we can come up with some hard statistics. But if you do it right from the front end, we're talking very little uptick in your costs. Very little, we're, uh, 1%, 2%. You do it on the back end and you can start multiplying that by three, five or more, you know, if you're retrofitting, Uh, do it on the front end. And and when I say that, I'm making a couple of assumptions Um, that cost factor um, is going to be dependent on how interactive is your site, how um, many pieces of your site that are interactive are reused versus I have to fix, you know, a thousand interactive pieces versus I have to fix 10. Um, and then multimedia captioning, uh, can be a a little bit more costly than, than your average. Mm -hmm. Is that the angle then that you, you try and work when you're maybe not convincing the web designer and developer, but the business itself to make the investment in uh, universal design and accessibility? Is it, is it a money issue? And sometimes I think that's what management responds to most. 
Um, I would say that I have a number of different angles and I'll pick a different one. I'd literally listen to what that other person is going to respond to. I'm trying to find which one of my things is going to hit them in their heart and in their head. Um, And so sometimes it's literally compassion. And and you're like, oh, my God, the web was invented for all of us to be able to share our ideas, not just some of us. I want to do that, you know, and I've got them on the hook. Or it may be, do you realize how this will help your search engine optimization and your mobile design? Got them on the hook. Or they may be completely legal driven. Do you do you want to stay out of the front page of the CNN? Yeah. <laughs> Um, my favorite, my absolute favorite one, I was working with um, an organization that sold tickets. And the first conversation with I had with the developer is why would a blind person ever want to attend or buy tickets for a sporting event? <laughs> That's where we started. That was the beginning of the conversation. So you can see how far I had to come. Six months later, um, and there was a lot of legal stuff going on and and posturing between companies, um, and this was in my previous life, not my current life, um, that same person called me and said, Glenda, I want to understand how this person can buy their ticket online, print it, and get to their seat. Because if they're blind, I don't get how that happens. And I was like, oh, my God, I got you. I turned you into it. You care. And Uh the other thing, that same group came to me when we were at the midpoint and they'd started to make the changes to their code. And they went, do you realize how much this has helped us in our QA? Because our QA tools were dependent on the same things that a screen reader needed to be able to climb through that code and look for errors. And so the accessibility um, things that we did for screen reader users improved their QA process, not for accessibility, but for does the functionality work? That's great. And I was like, oh my God, I just had a universal design moment. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That's great. Glenn, it's, it's so obvious how enthusiastic you are to advocate um, accessibility. I'm curious in the beginning, did you encounter or did you experience frustration trying to um, get those connections with people to get them on board with the idea? It was interesting um, because my early years in accessibility were on the University of Texas uh, campus. Um, And my mentor was Dr. John Slayton, who helped write um, the current WCAG uh, Web Content Accessibility Guidelines uh, at the W3C. Um, I had a support group around me (laughs) that was phenomenal, like international experts. And so every time I hit one of those walls, and believe me, I hit them, every time I hit one of them, I could turn to John Slayton or Sharon Rush or Jim Thatcher and go, oh, I'm so frustrated. And they would help me think of a way to come at it or give me the patience because sometimes what you have to realize is it's going to take I think of it like a castle and we're trying to knock down the door and we've got a big log okay so are we going to get that castle door down on the first knock on the door don't think so I think it's going to be about 10 times (laughs) 
So I just remember that sometimes I may not get to knock down the door, but I was the first three or four hits. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, So for people who want to, so you've got web developers or web designer who are interested in, in pursuing accessibility as part of their job. And what are a few simple first steps that they, that uh, designers, developers can do toward making their sites more accessible, or maybe a strategy for, for evaluating whether their sites are accessible? You know, um, really good practical information. Um, When I started my online textbook was webaim.org. And to this day, one of the first places I go to answer my own questions is webaim.org. So I think that that's a fabulous place to start. And I would, I would say that from a designer perspective, you go to webaim.org right now and you look on their very front page, you're going to see an article that says infographic web accessibility for designers. That's mm-hmm. a fabulous place to start if you're a designer. And it's not everything. Um, because accessibility is a broad and deep field. Um, also keep in mind hmm, a little bit of motivation, Um, the demand for the skill set is outrageously high. The pay for the skill set is delightful. (laughs) (laughs) So keep that in mind uh, when when you approach this topic. Um, But but here you can see in this wonderful um, infographic from WebAIM, um, you start with good heading structure. Um, you make sure that you have good visual contrast on the page so that, uh, you know, that text you put on the page, human beings can actually read it. <laughs> um, so there, there are a number of these items from a, from a design perspective. Um, and then there's one other thing that I want to mention to you. Uh, a dear friend of mine uh, is the accessibility expert over at Penn State. And if you type in Penn State and accessibility, you're going to come to a very pragmatic site for how is Penn State handling their legal problems with accessibility? And what's in the top center of that page? Top blockers. Uh So here they've listed missing alt tag. Alt text on your images is one of his top blockers. Missing page titles, good heading structure, good link text. So these are some of the things, video captions, uh, et cetera. And he's got a triage method. So whether you approach it from the web aim designer angle or you come over here, maybe and look at the work that Christian's done uh, for Penn State, both of these are really good starting places. Yeah, and these are are simple first steps to to mm-hmm. that once are you're they're ingrained in your process. It's not going to take any time to do things like remember to add alt attributes to title your documents to come up with a logical heading structure. I mean, that will just become mm-hmm. it should be second nature. It should be. And what I always want to tell people is if the developer is sitting there while they're coding it going, this is bogus. This is a waste of time. I'm doing this just because then there's something wrong. 
there's something right. wrong. We got to figure out why they think that either they don't understand what they're doing or maybe we asked them to do something that didn't make sense. And so I want to hold myself accountable that whenever you're working on this stuff, especially when I've recommended that you make a change to something, mm-hmm. um, I want you to feel like you helped make the web more accessible to more humans, search engines, etc. And if you ever feel any differently than that, then come kick me in the shins and make me prove why what I asked you to do is worthwhile. Great. Speaking of that worthwhile, you mentioned WebAIM as a resource for um, the actual designers and developers, but Mm -hmm. is there a resource you can recommend from uh, a less technical perspective for maybe your boss or a client who you're trying to convince this is important that explains it on a less technical level and and more business-minded? I would... um, Definitely uh, the first place that I think of, and I'd have to go read it because I normally do this verbally, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a story that I tell. Um, but out on the W3C is uh, a wonderful business case example. Uh, and it's, it's meant to help executives understand because try as we want to do this from the grassroots, if an organization really wants to do this right, we need support from the top. And your designers and developers need tools to do this well and effectively and efficiently, and they need training. So you're, you're right, coming at this from a top level is, is important too. My most, the most powerful thing that we find over and over again literally it will it will flip an executive right in front of your eyes um bring it bring a person in with a disability to use their web page right in front of them and that person that executive will go oh my that's terrible and and then the rest of us are going "Mm -hmm." (laughs) so you've done this many times or just a few times Um, or done it a few times um uh-huh. i don't i don't because the way clients are coming to me now um there is a flood there's a flood of clients coming to us right now so i don't have to go out door-to-door selling um at all um in in the past when we hit when we hit those moments where somebody doesn't care and that person is a key stakeholder that's either slowing down funding or slowing down resources, Uh um, then this is a really good thing to do. And and granted, I I always want to think when I'm dealing with, uh, you know, Fortune 100 companies, what is going on in that person's head? If they're saying no to accessibility, what are the other problems sitting on their desk? Did they just have a security breach? You know, are they having to balance resources between, you know, all my credit card numbers just got stolen? Well, then I'm like, oh, I understand. You know, are, are all your servers down this afternoon? Well, you're certainly not going to be talking to me about accessibility today. So I, I try to balance it out and be very, very pragmatic. Um, but at the same time, I'm really clear. If you're ignoring this, your litigation risks are serious. Mm-hmm. 
I'm curious, you've, you've mentioned a couple times, one, you said, you know, the work is just coming to you in droves. And additionally, you know, that the skill set for designers, developers uh, with accessibility chops is, is very uh, sought after right now. Do you think mm -hmm. this reflects um, a, the trend of, I mean, nowadays, for example, just my mom who wasn't really interested in buying things online or doing online banking is now very interested in part because now she's got a phone where she can do things. Does it reflect the trend of more users on the web or is it a reflection of there are more lawsuits that are becoming prominent? Do you see what, what is driving the trend for desire to have more accessibility across uh, industries? I I think it's a combination of, you know, three things really, really jumped to mind for me. And, and I'll be sadly honest with you. Um, I think one of the reasons is there are a lot of legal cases in the United States. Um, most of them settle out of court before they get to the point where a judge would make a decision. Why are those legal cases settling out of court? Because... Everyone believes <laughs> that the accessibility issue would have been found in the right. That's why they're settling out of court. And so um, major, major cases. Um, so I do believe that the legal climate in the, in the United States and these settlements is one of the prime, prime drivers. The secondary driver after that, um, I'm delighted when clients come to me. There's not legal pressure. There's none even near them. They're doing it because they care. They're, they recognized this. Um, and I've had, um, you know, I, I originally thought 80% of my clients were coming from direct legal pressure or my next door neighbor has it, as in my competitor has it. Um, but I'm I'm starting to see an, an uptick in the, no, we're going to do this because we're smart. And also aging population. Mm. 10 years ago, 10 years ago, did people in certain age brackets, older age brackets, use the web as much as they are now? So as we get into these disabilities, it, it is becoming a more prominent need. Those people also tend to have a lot of money. So there's a market up there. Right, right, yeah. Can you can you mention maybe one of the a, a big name case that uh, that you were referencing in terms of some of these uh, lawsuits? You bet, you bet. And what I'm going to do right now is I'm googling um, Laney Feingold. Um, that's L A I N E Y, Laney Feingold. Um, she is one of the disability rights uh, lawyers that does settlements. Um, and if you scan down her page and look, almost all of these articles on her page are coming from some sort of, of settlement. Um, I'm going to, because we're on a, on a broadcast and I have some customers <laughs> that are, that are in, in, in that list, I'm going to, um, look for one that's just really, uh, here's, here's an obvious one, uh, Netflix. Federal judge rules that ADA covers web only business of Netflix. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's, there's an interesting one. Um, and Looking through these, um, you'll see a large focus on uh, financials, um, 
you'll see education if you look out at these cases. Um, you'll see, surprised me when travel uh, started to become a, a, a big thing. And sure. now I'm seeing what I would call entertainment Netflix. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that you around know, captioning? It, it is. Is it, it is. It's on, it is. It's captioning. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. is that why they started adding captioning? <laughs> it is. It is. It's exactly yeah. why. Interesting. So it, yeah. it, these these rules make a big, big difference. And we had a, um, there was another one that came down, Charles Schwab uh, Web Accessibility Agreement, um, May of 2012 um, was, I, I remember the day that that was big news. And one of the first ones, um, and it's, it's, it's public, um, and that started the trend um, was Target in 2008. Um, and, and if you look, if you step back from it, um, you know, I'm an accessibility advocate. I care deeply about this. It's so obvious to me that this is what we need to do. But, but take 10 giant steps back from it. Um, in 2008 and earlier, did dot-com did think this applied to them? No, they really didn't. And, and they weren't necessarily being rude or mean. They really thought it didn't apply to them. And they were worried about the cost. And so when I think of it from that perspective, um, I recognize that it's an opportunity for us to educate executives on this isn't just the nice thing to do. This is a legal requirement. And let me show you the benefits of universal design. And I, and I try to remember, don't think that they're just being, um, you know, penny pinching because they're, they're, they're trying to make sure that they have a, a business model. And the last thing I want to do is have them make everything accessible and then go out of business. You know, that doesn't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> so are, uh, talking about mobile for a second, are there any uh, mobile specific accessibility challenges or is basically if you are creating an accessible site and through a web browser, desktop, you've, you've got a, an accessible site on mobile. So the majority of what you're going to do, and uh, a, a, another key for universal design, is if your web app is not a native app um, on the mobile device, but it's actually, right. you know, just from the web, um, yeah. then everything that you did to make it accessible on the desktop is uh, going to serve you on the mobile. So you're, you're, you're pretty much there. Um, the, if you're doing a native app, there are more things that you need to do, but there's excellent guidance. Um, I will say when I first saw the iPhone being used by people who are blind, my jaw dropped because <laughs> I had not even envisioned that a person who cannot see at all could use a touchscreen where mm -hmm. I'm using my finger like a mouse. I'm looking at things and picking where to put my finger based on where my eyes tell me. How could, how could a blind person do this? Well, because Apple thought outside the box and created a whole new paradigm. Um, and so the things that you need to do for uh, the native apps are uh, uh, different, but incredibly well documented by Apple. Apple's the clear, clear leader in this field right now. Um, I'm excited about the work that's happening at Google Android, um, but uh, Apple still has the jump on them. When we do comparisons between um, what works over on the, the iPhone and what works in other environments, um, it's amazing what we can do on the iPhone. 
So does the iPhone have a whole other set of touch gestures that are specifically for people with vision impairment or people who are blind? It does. It does. And what's super exciting, and I will warn you that um, go and open your iPhone if you happen to have an iPhone and okay. go, to the, go to the general section. Do not turn accessibility on without being near someplace you can learn how to turn it off. Why did I say that? Because the <laughs> moment, the moment you turn accessibility, the moment, and, and you could turn some of the features on, but when I go mm -hmm. into general and find the accessibility tab and I get down into the accessibility tab, you'll see the first section is for vision. Uh -huh. The second section is for hearing. Yeah. The third section is learning. Then there's physical and motor. And then there's something for a triple click. In other words, they're dealing with multiple disabilities here. It's just amazing what they're doing. And the the voiceover, if you turn voiceover on, and that's that screen reader that we talked about earlier that's coming bundled into Apple products. Yeah. If you turn that on, then all your normal gestures for you looking and using your eyes and touching the screen stop functioning that way. And they start functioning as though you're blind and cannot see the screen. And it's a different pattern. And to be honest, I have an expert on my team, Paul Adam, that does that kind of testing. So I don't know. I don't use the voiceover pattern. So every time I get in there, I have to go Google how to turn it back off. Uh -huh, right. Because <laughs> I forget. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in here. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I would say is, you know, when I began this, um, it was very exciting to be doing it almost like research inside a large EDU before it was obvious that it was legal requirement. Mm -hmm. And then there was the push for, well, it's obviously becoming a legal requirement. And then the motivation and excitement ramped up when I realized companies like Apple were looking at this in a whole different way. They weren't looking at it like, okay, we're, you know, yeah, we're going to make a better design. They were like, this will make us innovate. By having to think about accessibility, we're going to build a better product. And I'm like, yeah, leave it to Apple to think that way. And how awesome is that? Um, <laughs> So I believe that if you approach accessibility from the right direction, it literally drives innovation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So um, that's, a, a, I think, a very good place to leave it. I think that you've really made a case, I mean, on multiple levels for accessibility of websites. There's economic drivers, there's moral drivers, there's, you know, search engine optimization, there's, you know, the ability to improve your uh, quality control of your website. I mean, there's a, a laundry list of good reasons for web developers, designers, and business people who manage that to um, adopt accessibility as sort of a core strategy of website building. Um, so that's great stuff. How, Glenn, how can people find you on the So I'm pretty easy to find on Twitter. Um, I am Goodwitch. Uh, I normally introduce myself as Glenda the Goodwitch um, because I am a fan of The Wizard of Oz. And uh, you can also, my uh, blog is glendathegood.com. I don't blog very often, but, you know, just want to look historically. And last but not least, the company that I work for is DeQ, uh, www.deque.com. 
And if I can make one more suggestion, if there is anyone that wants to connect in uh, to the accessibility community, there are two things that I would recommend. Start following the hashtag on Twitter, pound A11Y. We're very geeky. The word accessibility is too long. It has 11 characters between A and Y, so it's A11Y. Um, you can so you follow the hashtag pound A11Y and you'll start to get introduced to the community. And there's a fabulous opportunity coming up in early May in Austin for an in-person conference uh, called Access U. Uh, and it's done by Nobility and it's one of the best places to get from. So I want to learn more about accessibility too. I've got a good foundation. Awesome. That's so great. Well, I want to thank Linda for joining us on Unbreaking Space and also Emily for being an awesome co-host with excellent, excellent questions. In fact, she wrote all the questions pretty much that I, <laughs> I asked Linda. <laughs> so thanks, Emily, for joining us. And, thanks for uh, having thank me. You bet. And thanks to Chris from Canada for pushing the buttons behind the scenes. You can follow him on Twitter at iChris uh, on your iDevice of choice. And thanks to you, the listeners. It'd be great if you could rate us up on iTunes. Uh, in addition to mentioning the show on Twitter and Facebook, iTunes reviews uh, do help us get the word out about the show. So until next time, thanks for listening to Non-Breaking Space. Mm -hmm.